Hey guys, I'm Chris. Hey everybody, I'm Robert. And we're the Film Flamers, bringing you this month's deep dive into, I don't know, one of my favorite horror comedies. I would definitely say it's one of my favorite horror comedies too. In fact, I would say that I have a husband's bulge for this horror comedy. (laughs) Man, just come out swinging. (laughs) I was saving that one. Oh, I'm sure we'll be saying it many, many times during this episode while we're discussing The Cabin in the Woods. So Cabin in the Woods is a 2011 American horror comedy film directed by Drew Goddard in his directorial debut, produced by none other than Joss Whedon and written by both Whedon and Goddard. The film stars Kristen Connolly, Chris Hemsworth, Anna Hutchinson, Fran Kranz, Jesse Williams, Richard Jenkins, Bradley Whitford, and Amy Acker. <laughs> At all. <laughs> well, I was like, I had to add a couple of names in there because it's just like... I love some of those actors, like Amy Acker, I had to add, because I loved her on Angel. Yeah, she's great in Angel. Speaking of which, Goddard and Whedon, having worked together on Buffy and Angel, wrote the screenplay in three days, describing it as an attempt to revitalize the slasher film genre and as a critical satire on torture porn. Special effects makeup and prosthetic makeup for the movie were done by none other than our new friends at AFX Studios, Heather Camp and husband David Leroy Anderson. <laughs> Seriously, <laughs> how did we not know about this? I mean, we've just been like not paying attention during credits at all, apparently. Uh, principal filming took place in Vancouver, British Columbia from March to May in 2009. Whedon called it a loving hate letter to the genre. <laughs> He said, it's a serious critique of what we love and what we don't about horror movies. I love being scared. I love that mixture of thrill, of horror, that objectification or identification of things, of wanting definitely for the people to be all right, but at the same time, hoping they'll go somewhere dark and face something awful. The things that I don't like are kids as idiots, the devolution of the horror movie into torture porn and into long series of sadistic comeuppances. Drew and I both felt like the pendulum had swung a little too far in that direction. So there's a lot to unpack there and we will unpack it as we go through. And we do want to note to all of our listeners that this film in particular, if you have not seen it, has some interesting twists and turns. And so if you have not watched it, we do recommend you go do that before you listen to this episode because there are going to be massive spoilers. And you'll just enjoy our conversation so much more if you've seen the movie. And trust me, this is one that you're going to want to. Yes. So with all of that being said, listeners, let's get into it. This is The Cabin in the Woods. Everybody ready? Doesn't even show up on the GPS. It's unworthy of global positioning. That's the whole point. Get off the grid, right? Hello? I'm thinking this thing doesn't take credit cards. Sign says closed. We're looking for, uh, what's it called? Tillerman Road. Not to get you there. Getting back. That's your concern. Oh, this is awesome. Whoa, no way. The lambs have passed through the gate. They are come to the killing floor. 
At work in their corporate office, Sitterson, played by Richard Jenkins, and Hadley, played by Bradley Whitford, are getting coffee from the break room and discussing some of Hadley's domestic issues when Lynn, played by Amy Acker, arrives to tell them that Stockholm failed and now it's up to them and Japan to finish the job. Hadley and Sitterson remain calm and complacent because Japan is always number one, with North America being number two. You know, because they try hard. Unworried, they head off to the control room. Meanwhile, in a bustling college town, Dana, played by Kristen Connolly, is packing for a weekend trip with friends, and hopes that the trip will be a distraction from a recent breakup. Her friend Jules, played by Anna Hutchinson, tells Dana to relax and have a good time. Jules' boyfriend Kurt, played by Chris Hemsworth, arrives with his friend Holden, played by Jesse Williams, to pick up the girls. Stoner Marty, played by Fran Kranz, arrives, and the group drives away in an RV to visit a cabin in the woods. Before they reach the cabin, they stop for gas, where they meet a grizzled gas station attendant. He says that he can give them enough gas to reach the cabin, but getting back will be their own problem. After telling them of living in the area since the time of the war, Jules asks which one. He rudely scolds her and calls her a whore. <laughs> the group angrily leaves and drives through an enclosed tunnel that serves as the only entrance and exit to the woods. As they enter, a hawk flies towards the mountain, but strikes an invisible electric barrier. The hawk tumbles down into a deep chasm. The group arrives at the cabin and begins to unpack in separate rooms. Holden removes a very disturbing painting to reveal a one-way mirror into Dana's room. He watches Dana until she begins to undress, stops her, and then he shows the rest of the group. He suggests that he and Dana switch rooms. Dana momentarily watches Holden begin to undress, but then puts the painting back over the mirror. In the corporate control room, the cabin occupants are being closely watched on monitors. Hadley and Sitterson meet the new security guard, Truman, who has been assigned to them. They explain the seriousness of what is about to happen. Lynn tells them that the chem department is ready, and has even planted chemicals in Jules' hair dye to make her more sexually active. Other employees arrive in the control room to start a wager pool on which monster will be summoned to the cabin. There is even a whiteboard with many different creatures and killers written on it. Back in the cabin, night has fallen and personality changes begin to develop in the group as they play truth or dare. Jules is dared to have a sexy encounter with a taxidermied wolf head on the wall, and just as Dana is guilted into choosing dare, the cellar door flings open, obviously controlled by the facility. The group heads down to find various strange artifacts. 
They ignore Marty's advice to go back upstairs and begin to investigate the different items. Kurt nearly blows into a conch shell, but puts it back. Kurt then starts to play with a puzzle ball. Holden operates a jewelry box with a dancing ballerina. Jules almost puts on a necklace taken from an old wedding dress, and Marty begins looking through an old film reel. They all stop, however, when Dana calls them over to read from an old diary from one of the members of the Buckner family. While reading, they come across a Latin inscription. Nobody but Marty notices a disembodied voice whispering at them to read it aloud. Dana reads the inscription aloud, thus unwittingly summoning the zombified Buckners from a nearby grave. Far below them, the facility cheers as the monster is chosen, but Hadley is sad that it was the merman as he had always really wanted to see one. <laughs> Back upstairs, Kurt and Jules head off into the woods for a little alone time, and when Jules hesitates to have sex, the facility techs release a pheromone fog, which gets her in the mood. They focus on her removing her shirt to show her breasts and explain to Truman that the act is actually necessary. She does, and the two start to bone. But while in the throes of passion, they're attacked by the Buckners. They stab Jules' hand and wound Kurt's shoulder. They hold Kurt and make him watch as Mother Buckner cuts Jules' throat with a rusty saw. Down in the facility, Hadley and Sitterson mark her passing with a prayer and pull a lever operating a complex machine that pours blood into the grooves of a stone carving far below even them. Meanwhile, Marty is in his room getting high and reading a picture book when he hears a mysterious voice suggest that he go for a walk. He talks back to the voice, saying that he is in control, but he decides to go for a walk anyway. While outside, he unzips and begins to relieve himself while the one-armed Patience Buckner stumbles towards him in the background. Suddenly, Kurt grabs Marty and urges him back inside while he tells the group that Jules is dead. Matthew Buckner appears in the doorway and tosses Jules' severed head into the room. After they push him out and bar the door, Kurt outlines a plan for everyone to work together to steal the house from the intruders, but Sitterson releases a gas into the house to disorient the group. Holden and Kurt now think that splitting up is the right thing to do, so they cover more ground. They each go into their rooms, where they're promptly locked inside by the facility. Reaching too close to the window, Marty knocks over a lamp and discovers a hidden spy camera. Realizing that they're about to be discovered, the techs prepare to gas Marty, but Judah Buckner attacks and pulls Marty through a window. Marty puts up a fight, but Judah stabs him with a trowel and drags him away screaming. Down in the facility, Sitterson and Hadley pull the next lever, releasing more blood, but a brief earthquake shakes the area, confusing the kids and surprising the facility workers below. When Mother Buckner attacks Dana, Holden jumps through the mirror and into the room to save her. They discover a trap door and make their way into the black room, referenced in the diary. The zombies attack again, but Dana defends them with a knife, which then gives out a subtle electric shock causing her to drop it. Kurt joins them from another basement room, and they make their way outside to the RV, where they fail to notice a bloody handprint on the vehicle's door. In the control room, Sitterson watches the video feed from Japan, where schoolgirls have united to destroy an evil spirit. North America is now the only viable scenario. Hadley glances at the monitor and notices that the RV is about to escape through the tunnel, which was supposed to have been caved in hours before. They contact the demolition department, who tells them about a system glitch. Citizen races towards their department and patches the wires causing the cave-in, forcing Kurt to back the RV out of the tunnel. Kurt decides that he's going to jump the ravine on his motorcycle to get help, but he crashes into the invisible electric barrier and falls to his death. 
Far below them, Hadley pulls the next lever and more blood falls into yet another stone carving. Holden and Dana drive the RV towards the cabin, hoping to find another exit road, but Father Buckner, who's been hiding in the RV, fatally stabs Holden through the throat while he drives. The RV veers off the road and into the lake near the cabin. As Dana fights to escape the submerged RV, the facility workers begin to celebrate a job well done. Truman asks how the ritual can be complete with Dana still alive, but Hadley explains that her death, the death of the Virgin, is optional, as long as she suffers, or at least dies last. As Dana fights for her life on the lake's boat dock, the celebration underground continues. Hadley's pleased, but still sad he didn't get to see a merman. Citizen teases the demolition department, but they reiterate to him that it wasn't their fault. There was a power reroute from upstairs. Citizen reacts with dread as a red telephone rings their office. Hadley answers in a hushed voice as he learns that someone believed to be dead has somehow survived without them knowing. On the dock, Matthew Buckner prepares his final blow to kill Dana, but Marty appears and stops him. Marty leads Dana to the Buckner's grave and into a room where Marty's original zombie attacker lies in pieces, but still alive, as Marty had to dismember him with a trowel to survive. Marty shows Dana that the room is attached to an underground elevator and surmises that someone sent the Buckners up to kill them. Dana and Marty climb in and ride down into the facility, accompanied only by the trowel-hacked zombie pieces. As they travel down in the glass elevator, they discover that the elevator is a cube that had held the Buckners, and they see other creatures and other cubes, a werewolf, a wraith, the sugar plum fairy, and Fornicus, lord of bondage and pain. <laughs> That's the best fucking name for a character ever. <laughs> Dana notices Fornicus holding a puzzle ball like the one Kurt was touching in the basement. She realizes that the artifacts in the room were a way of forcing them to choose their own deaths. She beats on the walls of the cube as hundreds of other creatures surround them in their own glass prisons. Lynn explains that the chem team had treated Marty's weed to make him more susceptible to mind control, but they must have missed a stash, and smoking it has somehow immunized him against their influence. Hadley and Citizen have Marty and Dana's cube sent to the lobby, giving orders to a guard to kill them upon arrival, but as he corners them in their cube, he is startled by Judah's detached zombie hand wriggling on the floor. Marty and Dana subdue the guard and escape with his gun and trowel. They step into the elevator lobby, where the director speaks to them over the intercom, urging them to give up. She tells them that their deaths are inevitable, part of something bigger and older than they could ever imagine. An armed security team arrives and shoots at them as they take shelter in the elevator control room. Dana notices a system purge button and activates it, unleashing all of the caged monsters into the facility. The monsters slaughter the security team and spread out, causing chaos as they begin to stalk and kill every living person in the facility. Dana and Marty are flushed out of the room by a dragon bat monster and escape the carnage through a hole in the wall. Meanwhile, the main control room is the last defense of the facility. Truman is killed by scarecrow folk, but he detonates a grenade which sends Hadley flying. Lying on the ground, Hadley finally gets to see the merman right before it kills him. Wah, wah. Citizen opens the escape hatch and climbs down into some tunnels, as Lynn is snatched from above by giant tentacles. Citizen runs into Dana, who accidentally stabs him. While dying, he pleads with her to kill Marty. Marty and Dana reach the ritual chamber, where they see five stone carvings representing horror character archetypes. The whore, the athlete, the scholar, the fool, and the virgin. Dana realizes that she and her friends are the victims of a ritual sacrifice, not merely to be killed, but also punished. 
The director arrives, played by Sigourney fucking Weaver, our queen, yay, and explains to them that the sacrifice is to appease the ancient ones, ancient and gigantic evil gods who slumber beneath the chamber and will awaken to destroy the earth if the ritual is not completed. Marty protests that maybe the world shouldn't be saved if these are the measures that are needed, but Dana understands that she can survive and save the planet just by killing Marty. She aims the gun at him, but a werewolf appears from behind her and savagely attacks her. Marty gets the gun and shoots the werewolf only to get into it with our queen, Sigourney fucking Weaver. Zombie Patience Buckner, who followed Marty and Dana down into the facility, arrives and kills the director with her hatchet. Marty pushes them both into the Ancient One's chasm below. Knowing the end is near, Marty and Dana share a joint and reflect on all that they've been through. Dana apologized to Marty for almost shooting him, and he apologizes for basically ending the world. As the chamber begins to crumble and collapse, they think about how great it would have been to see the Ancient Ones. Suddenly, a gigantic arm violently reaches up through the facility and out of the cabin as the Ancient Ones arise to destroy the Earth. The end. The end. Oh, God. Good God. <laughs> it almost took as long to read that synopsis as it did to watch the movie. Yeah. Right? I mean, that's literally everything that happens in that movie. Yeah, maybe we should, I don't know, make things a little bit more brisk next time. I'm not sure. <laughs> well, I mean, there's just no way around it, really. When you're talking about Cabin in the Woods, you really have to go through all the details because there's so yeah, many details. In fact, we left things out yeah, of this synopsis, really. And you uh, know? this... Um, this is a movie where like basically two different storylines are happening at the same time and then they kind of mm-hmm. come together in interesting ways. So it's a it's a difficult synopsis to write, but also, you know, kind of a long one to to kind of explain the plot for people that still have refused to watch the movie or people that just like our synopsis for whatever reason. So more power okay. to you. And there you have yeah. it. So uh, Cabin in the Woods definitely had its share of release issues. It was slated to be released in February 2010 and then delayed until January 2011, a.k.a. where horror movies go to die. Uh, Not just 2011, but any fucking January. Because MGM wanted to convert the movie to 3D. However, MGM announced that the movie would be shelved indefinitely due to ongoing financial difficulties at the studio. The LA Times reported that the studio was looking to sell both Red Dawn and cabin as they were the last two movies made under the old regime and interestingly both of those starred chris hemsworth and those were his big breaks actually so Mm -hmm. they saw the final version of cabin and they liked him so much that they put him in red dawn and this was back in 2009 and so that was supposed to be his big break and he was basically going to leave the country you know and and never come back but then someone saw those and he was cast in thor Mm-hmm. Right. And so Thor came out, I think, actually before Cabin in the Woods did based on this, even though it was filmed far in advance. It's pretty sad. So he had a huge release year, I think, or at least a couple of years where he was just a big name instantly from being in all these movies. I mean, he did explode like seemingly in one particular year, you know, as I recall. So Lionsgate eventually bought the film for distribution and Cabin in the Woods had its world premiere at South by Southwest on March 9th, 2012. It was widely released on April 13th and Goddard described the deal with Lionsgate as a dream saying, there's no question that Lionsgate is the right home for Cabin. You look at all the films that inspired it and most of them were released by Lionsgate in the first place. He's gone on to talk about how being patient in Hollywood is important. He said, 
Yes, it took two years longer than we wish it would have taken, but Lionsgate didn't want us to change a frame and believed in what we wanted to do. If I had complained too much when MGM went bankrupt, we could have hurt ourselves. We just held firm that we believed in that movie and that we would find the right home at the right time. So finally, upon its release on the film's opening day, it brought in $5.5 million and went on to have a $14.7 million opening weekend. Worldwide, it grossed over $65 million against a budget of $30 million. I'm sure it still made a fuck ton of money after that, though, right? Because with marketing and everything else, I don't know if that's actually making money or if it's you know, against, but 30 million is a big budget for this type of horror movie. Yeah. And I feel like that's a spoiler in and of itself for this film, right? Because you're, you're watching it and you're thinking, okay, this is your typical, you know, five, 10, $15 million horror movie. But then by the end, you completely understand where that budget went yeah, to. Yeah, where all the fucking money went to. I mean, like, and by God, they spent that money fucking wisely, in my opinion. So. And they got Chris Hemsworth on, on, you know, pennies on the dollar mm-hmm. <laughs> because they basically filmed it before he was famous. And I mean, and the other people had sort of worked with Whedon before, you know, I mean, so like I, yeah, I'm kind of shocked that it was, it took this long for it to release just because of Joss Whedon's name alone, you know? Well, and I know that you saw it on opening weekend. You guys saw it on opening night, actually. Sadly, I had to miss out because I was working that night and I came home from work and um, I think me and my husband were living with Chris at the time. And they're like, oh, we went to go see Cabin in the Woods. And I was like, you fuckers. Like, really? <laughs> but eventually I did get to see it weeks later. So that was that was good. And yeah. I think you you were there that time, too, whenever we watched it. I probably so. wanted to see it again. Yeah. Yeah, of course. It was so good. <laughs> So it was received very well. Cabin in the Woods is certified fresh on Rotten Tomatoes with a score of 91%, but holds a 71% audience score with over 200,000 user ratings, which is understandable to me. Um, Only because like, if you look at things that end horrifically, the user rating is generally lower than the, you know, people don't like, if you look at the mist, it's like five or 10 points below the, the critic score just because people don't like bummer endings. Oh, well, that's stupid. Well, it's just the mass, you know, it's just a mass average. So, but the site's consensus reads the cabin in the woods is an astonishing meta feat capable of being funny, strange, and scary frequently at the same time. Here, here. Yeah. Roger Ebert gave the film three out of four stars saying that it had been constructed almost as a puzzle for horror fans to solve, which conventions are being toyed with, which authors and films are being referred to. Is the film itself an act of criticism? he almost got there yeah (laughs) peter travers of rolling stone gave it three and a half out of four stars he wrote by turning splatter formula on its empty head cabin shows you can unleash a fire breathing horror film without leaving your brain or your heart on the killing floor i really like that quote actually David Rooney of The Hollywood Reporter, in an unfavorable review, said, In order to subvert any popular form, entertainment first has to work on its own terms. Goddard and Whedon are too busy geeking out to bother with those requirements. Oh, fuck yeah. So exactly. in 2015, <laughs> moving on. <laughs> in 2015, author Peter Gallagher filed lawsuit against Drew Goddard, Joss Whedon, and Whedon's production company, Mutant Enemy, and Lionsgate claiming that the film infringed upon his 2006 self-published work, The Little White Trip, a night in the pines according to an article on screen rant the novel is also meta commentary on the horror genre with five friends heading to an isolated cabin and getting picked off one by one the main character comes to realize that they're being watched by third parties there is a twist ending revealing that they're unwittingly taking part in a reality horror film and the events are being orchestrated by the filmmakers for the sake of inducing 
real fear in the performers. The book ends with the film's director explaining how each murder was faked and how the production was staged. The lawsuit was ultimately dismissed, however, with the judge deciding that while the book and the movie shared a premise, they were executed in totally different ways. Yeah, I mean, the, the movie could have easily gone in that direction because the guy actually says, I'm on a reality TV show. My right, parents are going to think I'm total burnout. <laughs> <laughs> you know, so they could have gone in that direction, but we already know, you know, that that is much, much darker than that. I remember back when that lawsuit was, was settled and I was just like, okay, I need to read this book, right? And here we are five years later and I still haven't read that book. <laughs> so, because, I mean, oh, oh, well. honestly, Cabin in the Woods is fine. I don't need to read some precursor knockoff it's all right so uh some accolades for cabin in the woods um saturn awards it won best horror thriller film and was nominated for best writing and at the at the fangoria chainsaw awards it won four best screenplay best supporting actor for fran kranz best wide release film and best makeup or creature effects I'm glad that it got some attention here, especially at the Saturn Awards. Yeah, I mean, I agree. I mean, like, I to me, this movie is probably good enough for some larger awards, right? But I'm I'm oftentimes colored by my love of the genre and and sure. flabbergasted by you know how the Academy doesn't you know recognize it. But that's neither here nor there. As long as it got some love along the way, I feel like it could have gotten a best original screenplay nom, definitely or for you know? sure. Yeah. So let's uh, let's walk our way through this movie. Okay. Let's. I mean, it's, it's going to take a bit. Starting off right at the credits. Like, this is such a disjointed intro altogether, if you put it all together. But, like, the first credits are actually, like, ancient pictographs of sacrifice and murder and monsters and stuff. Like, starting mm-hmm. with, like, Egypt and going to, like, medieval and stuff like that. So it's, like, really interesting that, that they're kind of subtly hinting at things right from the get-go. But you almost completely forget about that as soon as the teaser intro starts. Which, well, what I call the teaser intro which is the unexpected and seemingly completely unrelated corporate intro talking about baby proofing the guy's home and you know basically makes no (laughs) sense until later in the movie and i love it and then boom the title card which i think is a nod to like meaningless jump scares right because just this cabin in the woods right as they're like going off to their offices like in this corporate and nothing scary happened it's just hilarious to me and completely like i i knew very little going into the movie right because i remember watching trailers for this and i was like ooh, a new horror movie in joss whedon like i'm totally there for it but you know i didn't really know what the movie was about going into it into the theater and even like you guys were surprisingly deft at not telling me what the movie was and so i have to thank you for that because we were going to see this movie. I was sitting right next to my husband, right? Who had saw it with you the first time. And I was just like, um, I was like, what the fuck is this? <laughs> I was just like, come on now. Well, it's like, they kind of spo- like, I feel like they originally had wanted to make people think the joke was that they wanted to make, make people think that they had gone into the wrong theater. But remember those credits, you know, had started with the ancient right. know, pictographs and stuff. So you know, you're walked into a horror movie, but maybe they thought the reel had changed or something. Like, I don't know, because it does seem so random, but then you get boom, the title card. And I remember jumping when I first saw that in the theater, because it just, that's what it, you know, it was such a calm scene, boring scene. Well, and then yeah, totally because I, by the time that they had finished their conversation and then Amy Acker shows up and I was like, okay, so this yep. is just going to be like an extended Buffy or Angel episode, right? So it's going to be <laughs> funny, maybe a little scary and I'm going to like it. And then the, the title card pops up and I know that I jumped and maybe shrieked out loud for all that I know. Because <laughs> so, I was just so like complacent in that moment, you know, it was, I would like doled into a sense of like just 
corporate conversation amongst two people working together, two co-workers. But it's, it's also kind brilliant. of like the line this film is walking too, right? It's showing yes. how stupid and meaningless that jump scare is, but also how effective it is <laughs> yes. at the same time. <laughs> so it's like, it is like that love letter, you know? Agreed. And then we get to the actual intro where we actually get the, like the typical teen horror movie, you know, except the kids are actually wittier and smarter than usual. Right. They're actually like making interesting references and they're actually very smart people, like full academic scholarship and everything else. Uh, like even the stoner is weirdly insightful, you know, and mm-hmm. I love his retractable bong. I really <laughs> want one. Like I <laughs> apparently it costs $5,000 to make the prototype of that. Are you fucking kidding? <laughs> and it was actually <laughs> functional. Yeah. This crashes all my fucking dreams right there. Thanks for that, Chris. God. I'm sure. I'm sure they're out there. I think that some of the, I feel like you can, I feel like several like months after the film came out, people were like making it like as a prop that you could buy like a cheap version. I'm not that handy. I'll have to get my husband on that. So, yeah. So I feel like right from the get go, perhaps like the corporate, like the facility's ultimate mistake is that they chose to recruit these, like, I guess they're not teens, but they're like college age, but that they're smarter than the usual victims that we normally see. And that they really only roughly fit the stereotypes and that they aren't exactly what they seem. And maybe that's one of the film's early messages is that stereotypes are problematic and they actually literally have to drug them to get them to fit these stereotypes more cleanly. Well, yeah. I mean, and I kind of like that critique about the horror movie in that particular moment, you know, I mean, because we, as, as horror archetypes have gone on, I mean, from early slasher movies to, to what we see now, and obviously I think we have Scream to thank for a lot of that too, like things have changed. But I mean, I think that people try, especially when they're talking about horror to, to pigeonhole things into things they've seen before or whatnot. Does that make sense? Yeah. You know, and like, this is so obvious that these people are not these things, but even the first time that I watched this movie, I wasn't thinking about the movie in, in archetypes like that. Like yeah. I didn't really, I didn't, I wasn't putting them into there. Nope. And I think that by the time this movie was made, I think a lot of movies had like replaced those archetypes and just had regular characters in their movies. Or maybe I'm just being completely naive, but, um, no, like I, I wasn't you're supposed to be hyper aware of this. The, yeah. the first time you watch it, especially at this point where they don't even mention any archetypes yet. Mm-hmm. But this is also the point where we see the guy on the roof saying like they're in motion, they're on their way or whatever and like that. And I feel like that's a kind of a an interesting little personal issue I have with the film, which is like they really could have kept all this stuff a little bit closer to the chest. Maybe okay. maybe not reveal that and, you know, but anyway, I digress. It'll, it'll come. It'll keep coming up. But the, as they journey to the cabin, uh, Marty like has this little bit where he's talking about society is becoming decadent and dependent on technology and lazy, and it deserves to crumble. Um, <laughs> you know. And then he says, "In the end, you'll see things my way." And then, you know, I feel like that's a huge foreshadowing moment in the script. I feel like yeah. that, yeah. So he always gets these really wise, like almost wizardly things to say, poetic things. Um, and I've written some of them down as we walk through. And of course, we get our first obvious horror trope when they stop for gas and see the Harbinger, Mordecai. I the love the station. Harbinger. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. I-, <laughs> I love how witty they are in their, like, you know, they're rebuffs to him or whatever. Yeah. I mean, cause you don't see that very often. I mean, normally in horror movies, when the harbinger shows up, they're just like all like, like shivering and like, Oh my God, what a weird fucker. I mean, you look at like Friday the 13th for one, right. Where that old man pops up at the, ca- the, the camp that they're rebuilding to reopen. And he's like, you're doomed, doomed and shit. Or even it's cabin like- fever. 
Yes. You know? <laughs> oh my God. Yeah. I, well, you know what? And I cannot wait to talk about cabin fever because especially the, after talking about this one, it's going to be a good order. I know. I mean, cause they're almost exactly the same opening. <laughs> <laughs> they are. And that's a good reason for that. But yeah. Uh huh. So, and then we get yet another kind of call out where the bird is hitting the invisible wall as they go through the mountain tunnel. And I feel like that's such a spoiler. Like I'm on the fence, whether it should be included this early in the story, but I definitely don't think it should have been included in the final trailer for the film. You know, that's what I was going to say. I think I remember that being in the trailer. Right. And so, I mean, and that, that did add a level of intrigue to the movie itself when you're just watching a trailer, but watching the full movie, I, that's kind of something I wish they would have cut out, you know? Yeah. And so it's like, I like that, but I feel like it would have been much more of a shocking moment with the first time we see that force field being when he tries to motorcycle across and hit it. Agreed. And I'd almost like to see a re-edit of this movie where it's a little, it's just kept a little bit closer, you know, and maybe some of the corporate stuff gets cut out, but I love all that stuff. So like I said, I don't know. Yeah. I don't know how that would work. It would be certainly less funny and ironic and like winking at the camera, you know? But I think at this stage and like moving through the movie, I think we're just nitpicking a little bit. Like I you said, yeah. I mean? yeah, yeah, I'm on the fence. You know, I'm just thinking yeah. like in hypotheticals <laughs> as far as mm-hmm. like with this, how much of a different movie, how big of a surprise would it have been? But then they arrive at the cabin. And of course that painting on the wall though. Fuck me. <laughs> My God. <laughs> Where can I buy it actually? I mean <laughs> And yet again, yeah. And then yet again Marty says it was the pioneer days. They had to make their own interrogation rooms. <laughs> you just get so many good lines in this. But the painting is so disturbing that it's obvious to me that they were supposed to see the one way mirror. Like who on their right mind would have like left that painting up or not covered or not tried to take it down. So I feel like that's the first kind of step in a warning or harbinger process that we weren't really explicitly told about, but I don't know. I I love that. They both say, yeah, I don't think so to the painting, both Dana and Holden. (laughs) Well, I mean, I mean, they, so they have to follow the steps, right. Yeah. You know, through all this. And so like they, they have to be, they, they have to have the harbinger and I guess they have to, all these choices have to be their own. Right. And maybe that's just another subtle warning or whatever, like you said, but I love that fucking painting. I would totally like display that in my dining (laughs) room, you know, (laughs) that reminds me of that, um, Cthulian one, like where he goes to the hotel and all the paintings are like that. Um, um, something of madness. Oh, in the mouth of madness. In the mouth of madness. Yeah, mm-hmm. I like that movie. All those paintings are changing and it's gross. Um, yeah, this is a really good point in the movie too, because uh, like I, I like that. I like when horror movies will also like ogle the men a little bit, right? Mm-hmm. Yeah. And so when we get Jesse Williams or his character's name is Holden, like taking off his shirt and Dana stopping to watch for a minute, and I'm like, okay, so like she's the virgin, but she's obviously. You know. Yeah, but I keep thinking like he obviously knows she hasn't had time to put the painting up. He's putting on a little know, show. You know? like- <laughs> <laughs> I'm a smart guy. I mean, mm-hmm. I but this it. is also when we first see that they're being watched on you know CCTV or whatever, and we see it kind of zooms out of the room while she's putting the pa- the painting back up, and we see that it's on monitor, and the corporate people that we've already been connected to are watching them. So it's it's right here where we get that first connection. We don't know why yet. You know, could be reality TV. It could be something more sinister. We don't know. No one's died yet, right? And we get that the official corporate kickoff with uh, the harbinger on the phone. <laughs> the speakerphone. Am I on speakerphone? <laughs> <laughs> 
and it's like something we thought was super creepy and then they kind of just belittle him and then i love all the details about the bedding pool like it didn't have to be in the movie like it's so brilliant that it shows all these little details of of that and then and like um but then we have the audience in the in the way of um the security guard right because he's asking all these questions he's kind of mortified that they're like placing bets and everything Uh and they're like it's hard but we have to get through it somehow you know and he says they have to choose if they don't transgress they won't be punished you know so it's it's kind of showing that these people are still human dealing with it how they have to kind of doing their duty be happy about it and the security guard is like no (laughs) you guys doing i mean i don't i don't know i i I found that part really funny not because of you know the the betting and whatnot i the the part that i found the most humor in is how many different departments there were and these people trying to kill these kids intern (laughs) yeah and then there was an intern and shit and i was just like so i was fascinated by that whiteboard after seeing this movie like it was my dream to be able to like because there were so many brief flashes and you know thanks to the magic of the internet we know we've seen it now yeah and we don't actually really see it until after they choose the monster right but first we have that truth or dare game back in the cabin oh yes oh my god i dare you to make out with that moose over there (laughs) (laughs) and i'm wondering if the moose comet is actually a reference for evil dead but i think that was a deer yeah, it's a deer in that one. But yeah, I mean. <laughs> and then she does the wolf dance. And I love that she's making out with the wolf. Like, it's all really uncomfortable and funny and weird at the same time. This guy really knows how to make us feel uncomfortable. But then she says, thank you. I, <laughs> I was like, that was a perfect little touch. So when I was watching it on this, you know, rewatch for the podcast, I was sitting there and I was just like totally zoned out while she was doing all of it and like talking to that moose head. And I was just like, oh, my God, like for real, this is like kind of sexy or whatever. I mean, I made a joke just then. You didn't even laugh at me. Oh, my God. What was the joke? Well, I called it a moose head. Oh, (laughs) (laughs) Thank you. Anyway, I was just like, you know what? In a really off-kilter way, this is kind of sexy. And then I had to pause the movie and go smoke a cigarette because that was wrong. I was wrong to be thinking that. <laughs> <laughs> well, I mean, it was done really well. I mean, she she makes it, she tries to, to sell it, you know, and that's the that's the comedy of it is that she's working so hard. And then she and says, by God, thank you. <laughs> it was crack up every time. It was her best moment in that movie. This is Anna Hutchinson's best moment in yeah, this movie. And I wish she was more like in more stuff, you know? I wish everyone in this movie was in more stuff. For real. But I mean, like, she was a really likable character. Like, I really, I really enjoyed her, especially in that particular moment. But yeah, I was sad right. that she it's... was the first to go. But of course, as soon as when it's Dana's turn and she's basically guilted into saying dare, the basement door bursts open and they and someone, they're already drugged to the point where someone goes, the wind must have blown it open. <laughs> right. And Marty's like, really? <laughs> <laughs> that is directly from Evil Dead, yep. though, mm-hmm. right? Yeah, <laughs> so, yeah, and of course they all go down into the fucking basement. <laughs> so, yeah, obviously the the corporate crew took their opening, and you know, listening to like, oh, they're you know, they're going to dare to go down, you know, so they took that opening. So it's funny to think about things that are going on that we weren't shown in the background. But anyway, they're in the basement. And this is where we get every artifact from every horror film, like basically ever made. And then some. My fucking God. Like, I remember the first time I saw this and they were walking down to that basement and touching everything. Like, my horror brain was just going berserk. I was just like, there's everything, everything in here. 
every fucking trope, every fucking movie, every fucking monster you can possibly like could like attach an artifact to is right here in this fucking treasure trove room. And I just loved that. And we had a top 10 episode for horror movie artifacts. Right. And I think one or both of us mentioned everything in the basement of cabin in the woods, (laughs) everything in the basement of cabin in the woods, because my God, it was just so amazing and so well done and so fucking thoughtful, you know, not just from like a, a, a screenwriting standpoint, but from like a fucking set design standpoint, it was just amazing what they created. In yeah. This. I love that they did such a call out to Hellraiser when they didn't have to. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, in, in lots of movies, I just, I, you know, we could have an entire episode just going through all the artifacts in that fucking the movie, different you know? things, the so, different things could be, you know? Yeah. Mm hmm. But, uh, so there's, they, they do that. They go into the basement and they start reading from the fucking diary, right? <laughs> Which is itself kind of funny and cringy because you know, I mean, if you're an experienced horror movie watcher, once they start reading from that diary and they're reading exactly as things are written, you're like, this is going into a really bad place. Yeah. You know, and like, Marty's like, warning doing. them. He's like, do not read the Latin. I'm drawing a line in the sand. <laughs> And then there's whispers that only he can hear because he's not drugged out of his, well, he's drugged out of his mind, which is inoculating him against all the other drugs are pumping mm-hmm. into the cabin. But the whispers, read it aloud. <laughs> what? And then she does. <laughs> wait, wait, wait. This is where we get husband bolts for the first yeah, time true. too, right? Yeah. <laughs> husband bolts. <laughs> like he hacked off my arm and edit. <laughs> I mean, like, <laughs> it's just so good. Yeah, my good arm is hacked and it. <laughs> <laughs> I hope this is legible. <laughs> that little girl from Silent Hill is so nice of her. It's so nice of her to tell us that. God, you keep talking about Silent Hill, and I haven't seen this movie. I clearly need to watch it. Yeah, the same little zombie girl was the little girl. Oh, she's Silent Hill, same actress. Okay, yeah. But yeah, so obviously this is when they have chosen the monster uh, or their manner of death, I guess. And um, the the corporate bet scene happens. So zombie redneck torture family is completely different species from zombies, like an elephant and an elephant seal. <laughs> so <laughs> when we did our top 10 horror comedies episode last April, and I was reading a, a favorite line or a funny line from each movie, when I got to Cabin in the Woods, that was the one that I put on there because it's my favorite quote from this movie. Yeah. <laughs> but we also get like a bunch of exposition in these scenes too like and they're saying everything is a remnant of the old world and the old gods and i it leaves me wondering if this could actually be like a part of the buffy universe like this is a hellmouth or something that's super interesting like with the ancient ones beneath it and everything it's interesting because every hellmouth is supposed to be a little bit different well, it's possible so i don't know but and then the guy says i'm never going to see the merman and then there's the you know and he says that you don't want to see it they're terrifying the cleanup on them is a nightmare <laughs> <laughs> so one of the fun facts that i didn't actually uh end up on the it actually ended up on the cutting room floor is that they actually had filmed I don't know if this is a joke or not, but Drew Goddard said they had filmed nine minutes of the of the merman spewing blood out of its blowhole, and they were going to do that over the entire credit sequence. <laughs> that is fucking amazing. And so the whole room was going to just be like completely drenched in blood and like partially flooded with blood that didn't like doesn't even exist in one human body, like. But obviously, that was a little too over the top, so they didn't do it. Only the last 10 seconds of it were used. 
there's a lot of like addendums to this movie too you know did you know there's like a visual companion <laughs> apparently um, and a novelization i'm like oh, oh my i God. need to get my hands on some of this stuff so we see that whiteboard and we see a bunch of you know interesting call outs to other horror movies and we'll get more into those later um but this is essentially where the nightmare begins right because they're released um we've got marty kind of like reading a book with pictures and <laughs> <laughs> and Prince Nemo like, or something like that. Yeah. <laughs> Puppeteers, we are not who we are. <laughs> you know, <laughs> you know this poetic talk from him. And then, of course, the first death from the zombie family, just as Kurt and Jules are about to have sex. Yeah. Um. And at this point, corporate has done such a good job of dumbing people down that Marty's beginning to notice just how weird and out of character his friends are. Noticing that Kurt's new like alpha male personality is not who he is at all as he's someone who was on like full academic scholarship and he's never acted that way before. So he's, you know, that's why he's starting to get really paranoid about what's all this stuff going on. He's already heard the whispers in the background and, you know, the cellar door opening. Did you notice watching the movie the first time how quickly they had changed, right? From from who they were in the beginning to who they were then? Because it was kind of like like immediate and in your face when they changed. As soon as they get into the cabin, basically, right out of right. the truth or dare sequence and they go into the cellar. And I don't know, you know, the first time I was watching it and I was just like, maybe I've just seen a lot of horror movies and I know that when people get drunk in horror movies, they change a little bit, you know, and they were starting to fit the archetypes a little bit more, you know, but it really didn't dawn on me that they had changed all that much. And I think it's because I've seen so many fucking horror movies that I was expecting all of this stuff to happen, Yeah, you know, so... But yeah, when he started talking about like, why is he acting this way? He's on a full academic scholarship. And I was just like, oh, you know, yeah. <laughs> like, head tilt. And then he's susceptible to it to its as well to a certain extent. Like he hears that he hears that I'm going to go for a walk, you know, and then, you know, <laughs> he's like, well, I don't I'm not controlled that way. I'm going to go for a walk. <laughs> so obviously it's still, you know, going on some level. You know where he's he's at least influenced by it, and then of course he walks to the living room, and you know, and and uh, the two are on the couch making out, and he's like, he's got a husband bulge. <laughs> <laughs> Best recall out ever, <laughs> and yet more like poetry for him. And then he looks up while he's taking a piss and sees that there's no stars, and he goes, "I thought there'd be stars. We are abandoned. We are abandoned." <laughs> I was like, holy shit. <laughs> He's like the soothsayer of the movie. There's always got to be one. I'm just glad that for once it was the fucking stoner. You know what I mean? Yeah. And then, of course, that's ex- exactly when Curtis comes running and they have to go in and, you know, run from the zombies that are about to attack. And we get that whole sequence where, you know, they all get split up and they get drugged. And um, I love the detail of when she has to drop the knife because it's like a subtle shock or whatever. Oh, when they were in the black room. It's like a reason for every stupid like person in horror movies to like leave their weapon or something like that. It reminds me of our discussion of Dawn of the Dead 2004 where the guy like Mm -hmm. drops his like crowbar and then picks up a fucking croquet mallet. (laughs) Yeah. Or they leave the gun or they leave the knife, you know, after the first thing and then they don't take it with them, you know? So it's a, it's an interesting little nod to that. And I, and I, and I love that. The pace of the film is going much, much faster now. And so they've all been attacked. People are dead um, or dying and they leave in the RV. And even with like the, um, the spoiler of the hawk hitting the shield it's still really jarring to see kurt's bike jump like and hitting the wall and then him dying that way 
even though we know what's going to happen. Yeah, because there's such of like a her- heroic crescendo of music and they're like, you know, okay, you have like a, a good like foot on it. You just get a good start and you can jump it. And you're like, yeah, you're like getting into the moment, right? And I failed to realize watching this movie for the first time, like how quickly events were ramping up. And I was like, well, this is a really super short movie or what? Mm-hmm. Like, obviously there was something going on like after all this, but people were dying at a rapid pace. And I kind of almost convinced myself that he was going to make that jump. Right. And so, you know, when he hits the wall, it's really sort of defeating for a viewer to watch. Right. Yeah. It's what's well, sad. Mostly because, I mean, I like that actor, you know, but it was kind of coming back to his wits a little bit too. Yeah. You know, he was, he was like still being like jockish, but he was thinking not just about himself and his girlfriend, but he was thinking about the the group, the greater good and trying to like escape or bring help back to people. Like I can save these people. Right. Of course, then he's dead. And all that the audience knows is that Dana and Holden are the last ones. And then of course, Holden gets killed with a thing through the neck while he's driving, which was pretty jarring. And- oh, because it was like mid-sentence, right? Like right through his pretty fucking throat. Yeah. <laughs> and at this point, Dana is like realizing that Marty was right about everything, about puppeteers oh, yeah, yeah. and everything. And then we kind of get this juxtaposition of her kind of fighting for her life in the water and on the docks with the zombie and the corporate people are like throwing a party and yeah, they're having their party. This is where we learn about the archetypes and how the Virgin's death is optional. As long as it's last, as long as she suffers. And of course, like her fighting for her life on all the monitors while they're all drinking and partying to seventies rock. (laughs) (laughs) Well, I mean, and it was before that too, when they were showing the scenes from Japan, right? Where, you sort of like get an idea of where the movie's heading a little bit, yeah. right? You know that they know that America's the last, the last hope for whatever they're trying to accomplish. And we still don't know everything, but this is the point where everything starts to like really fit into place, right? And I like that you called like juxtaposition of her fighting for her life because that's really what it is. I mean, there's so much going on in the story that we were invested in, probably really fully at that point, and it's going on silently on a big screen behind the big party, right? <laughs> And I'm always trying to like watch and see like what the hell's going on with her, but it's you can't because like what's going on in those corporate offices is always so entertaining. Yeah. <laughs> so. Well, I'm, it kind of makes me wonder like if Japan had succeeded, do they kind of just lock everything up and like, allow them to have their weekend? Like at that point, it like they would have, you know, if they had let them escape or whatever, they would have like brought back police and everything else. Unless this is some big, you know, government sponsored thing, you know? So I, I don't know. Would they have gone through with the whole thing or would they let them go? Interesting. I think that they would probably go ahead and let them die. Yeah. Actually. Die. Yeah. Yeah. Mm-hmm. So I, I think I remember at this point she is saved by Marty. And I think I remember in the theater, everyone just kind of like clapping as soon as Marty shows up out of the blue being having survived surprisingly and saving her by like catching the chain with his like bong sword. (laughs) (laughs) Because he's such a good character, you know? I mean, he's funny. He's, he's wise. Like you've said, I mean, like he really is like the, the heart of the movie for the most part, where in most of these horror movies, it would have been the virgin, but there's, yeah, but they're still so smart about like, the callbacks that they do and knowing that things would be in a point of entertainment, like that bong, you know, yeah, yeah that's <laughs> having right. to use it as a weapon. Like it's just hilarious. It's amazing. Um, and then I think at this point, the audience is having their minds slowly blown, you know, as they go down the elevator and see all those other cubes, 
you know, even with the spoiler, this movie is starting to be super impressive with its ending, right? It's just zooming out more and more and more. I can remember watching this for the first time in the theater and at the, when that, when that, that cube started to go down and we saw like the werewolf first, mm-hmm. right? And then it went over to that, the wraith, that ghost, yep. right? And then finally to the sugar plum fairy and then to Fornicus, <laughs> the Lord of Bondage and Pain. <laughs> I was my mouth was fucking agape. I yeah. was like, "What? <laughs> they know? made this for me." <laughs> I know it's like every horror fan's wet dream. I was just like, "Oh my god, yes, so much yes." Yeah, but there's so much more after that. You know what I mean? So yeah, yeah. you I, think, "Oh my god, this is it," and then you see the big all the cubes moving around like the movie Cube, almost a direct shot. You know, so oh, yeah. yet another reference, yet a lo- like a reference including thousands of other references inside of it. Mm-hmm. It's just like an amazing shot for horror, you know? I, it's like mind-blowingly yeah. original. And, like, and you expect the budget to be much lower based on everything you've seen so far than everything right. they're, they're able to show us with all those monsters being released. I noticed like the strangers, you know, and the, you know, lighting people on fire with their masks and stuff. And then like the, the angry molesting tree coming out of the elevator. Mm-hmm. And there's even a fucking unicorn complete with a magical music cue <laughs> that just nails someone to a wall with his horn. <laughs> well, and then like uh, the, the clown for one, you know, mm-hmm. like I thought was a really interesting touch. Those doctors that were in there are just amazing, right? Some of the, like they have several different kinds of zombies, yeah. you know, and it's just like so amazingly well-crafted and well-executed. It was almost like a ballet of horror movies <laughs> happening, right? Because there's like one purge and then there's a second purge with like more things coming you know it's just so much it's like an assault on your horror senses right and i mean like we'll talk about you know themes and things coming up and whatnot in re- in reactions really but i mean like this is kind of the, a movie that you need to watch many many times to really get the full force of everything they're showing you in a really quick like 10 or 15 minute span even less than 15 minutes it's very fast yeah did you recognize the clown like as an actor? No, like the clown is the same uh, outfit, same laugh and knife and the way he walks or dances towards you is the exact same way it was in like the little, like the nightmare dream episode of Buffy where the clown attacked Xander. What? No, I did yeah. not. <laughs> That's amazing. Yeah. So, yeah. And then, of course, we finally get the payoff with the merman reference. So it's <laughs> Oh, yeah. We're Hadley. Which is also something the director said was the highest point of the audience like reviews. Everyone loved that moment where the, where the merman finally comes. Well, I mean, he has there's there's a look on his face, you know, when he's just like, OK, fuck me. Right. When that merman's coming up. But he's also very happy. He's like, well, if I got to die, you know, this is the way I want to go. Yeah. And then we get the final reveal or the final reveals, I should say. But of course, the huge Sigourney fucking Weaver reveal. I mean, I recognized her voice on the intercom. Oh, yeah. But I feel like others, a lot of other people's didn't. And they they were but they were excited as soon as they saw her on screen and started clapping as well. And there's a very similar thing in the movie Paul that I think came out later that you still haven't seen. I haven't. I haven't seen Paul yet. So you should see that. But yeah. It's but really who doesn't know Sigourney Weaver's voice? I mean, are we just like that? Are we just, we just stand her so much that we like. <laughs> yeah. I mean, come on. I, um, I know the queen. So. Um. <laughs> <laughs> you recognized her voice. Oh yes. I mean, I know Sigourney Weaver's voice when I hear it. Yeah. <laughs> so. 
you can die with them or you can die for them. She made a really good speech. And I was like, I was convinced. I was like, fuck it. <laughs> this is the way it has to be. You know, let's. I mean, so if, if you were Dana, would you have aimed at Marty then? Right. Cause this is what happens. Right. So she has the choice to save the earth or save her friend. I can't you know? possibly imagine because I'm drugged at that point. I'm completely like ripped open by this werewolf or whatever. Actually that was right before or right after that. But, um, right. Yeah. You know, I don't know, like seeing all of the, like seeing all of those boxes, all the technology, everything that would have had to, to support this and then being talked to and given the exposition of what all of this means and what all of this, you know, obviously billions of dollars went into, you know, can't be fake, you know? So I, I can't imagine being in that position, you know? Yeah, I mean, if you're like thrust into an environment where you have like, there's there's evidence, right? She's standing there. She's seeing what's going on. She obviously knows there's something pretty terrible beneath her, right? Yeah, you know. And then a choice has to be made. But you know, she didn't. She didn't get to make her choice. Really, it was made for her. But yeah, well, which was good. I mean, they they kind of cleverly wrote that to get the werewolf to come up behind her, and of course, he didn't. Marty didn't warn her about the werewolf because no. you know she yeah. was about to shoot him but then she she could have tried to kill him again but she didn't she was just like fuck it you know yeah. <laughs> she's gonna either die or become a werewolf anyway so <laughs> but then we get to see our little uh one-armed patience buckner come up too and uh destroy the queen yeah the sigourney fucking weavers <laughs> yeah short-lived cameo i i do wonder if there's like an alternate ending where he does sacrifice himself by jumping off like into the abyss to save the world and, but then we wouldn't have been able to see that like massive hand coming out of the ground and the dark ending. Yeah, I I really hope that that ending doesn't exist. And something tells me that Joss Whedon's not going to write no, that ending. No, because you know, you know, that's not the point of the movie. So I think it ended in the only way they had written it. But uh, let's get into to some of the the themes that we've noticed. Okay, let's. So I think like you had already said, like at its most simplified, its commentary on the horror genre itself and also maybe like Whedon's comments on the genre and torture porn. Yeah. And so, I mean, like, I, I don't know. I'm the worst person in the world to mention torture porn to because I kind of like that subgenre of horror, you know, like I'm not, I'm not off put by it the way that a lot of people are and a lot of horror fans are for that matter, you know, but um, the movie itself to me is a huge commentary on all of the horror genre in a way that scream only wishes it could be, you know, like Scream did a really good job for some like early meta 90s stuff. But Cabin in the Woods really takes the horror genre as a whole yes, and like turns it on its head. And if he said in articles or whatever he wanted to do, you know, like sort of do a meta thing on slasher genre, he went way, way beyond that and just, you know, took the opportunity to talk about everything that horror fans love. Right. And I just, I sort of love him for that. I love this screenplay. I love everything he has to say about horror movies. And I mean, like he really like added in just everything that there is. Like I, I think it would be hard pressed to find something that's happened in a horror movie that he didn't somehow add into cabin in the woods. Well, it's pretty layered because each one of these films, like Halloween itself, you know, it has themes. Right. And so to kind of have commentary on all these different themes from all these different movies, and kind of seeing their common elements, you know, there's themes of the stereotypes based on those archetypes, which is problematic yeah. and doesn't always work out. And also, of course, the giant love letter to horror movies providing reasoning behind all of their cliches and rules. Yeah. Saying that basically this movie and like 
this mythology is behind all of the other horror movies you've seen. Um, this is why they dropped the knife. This is why they're doing this or that. You know, it's just it's really kind of fun. It's kind of creating a scapegoat for all of these different cliches that we we love to hate or we hate to love. You know, and it's really fun to think about going back and thinking about your other favorite horror movies, and we're like, well, maybe this is that year's ritual from 1984. Yeah. This is that year's ritual from 1997 or whatever. You know, like this could even be meta on Scream. They'd be like, well, this is the ritual from that year that Scream was made. I love that every horror movie can be reduced to just the one simple thing happening in this particular movie behind the scenes. And also, Sigourney actually mentioned something that was interesting to me that nothing, like almost nothing else in the movie had, which is like the youth obsession culture or even like the youth judging culture right where she was like uh he's like why is this happening why is this the thing and she's like because you're young as a punishment for you know doing all the things the rest of us can't i don't know like it's uh it's kind of interesting because you look at those uh, slashers and it really yeah. is a judgment you know or you know morality tale forced upon younger people and uh it's kind of interesting thing to that they just kind of snuck in there into the script. And that's true. I mean, so I mean, a lot of horror movies, whether they're slasher or not supernatural, I mean, a lot of them have to, you know, revolve around younger people and their foibles and mistakes and, you know, the comeuppance that comes with that, you know? And so he's talking about, you know, his, his comments on torture porn. He just want a series of like larger scaled comeuppances mm-hmm. and he doesn't do that. Right. So he sort of stops what's happening in horror movies around the time that this movie was made and released. And it's just like, just random killings that happen in, in a ritual setting, right? These are the way that's supposed to happen. It's following the rules. It's not doing anything new or outlandish, right? It's everything he, everything you see in this movie has been done before. And it's supposed to be that particular way. Yeah. I remember following this movie because of, you know, Joss Whedon and Drew Goddard and before it was ever released and then being so angry that it was shelved for two years, but yeah. They still just would not talk about it and what it was about. And I'm glad they didn't. The only thing that mm-hmm. I remember Joss Whedon kind of saying in an interview was that like, all I'll say is the, this horror, this is a horror movie to end all horror movies, literally. And it is. <laughs> and he wasn't fucking wrong. No. And I was know? like, what could that possibly mean? And it, yeah, it literally ends. The, it, it just provides reasoning for every, all the traditional horror movies together in a way that showcases like the ritual of tropes and then ends them by ending the world. <laughs> so it just zooms out right. so much. And I love it. I think it's, it's great. And perfect for what it is. Yeah, I completely agree. Right. I, I really do. Um, let's, uh, let's talk about some of the characters in this movie and the, and the acting for that sure. matter. Cause I, I think the acting in this movie is top fucking notch, like really for a horror movie, for a comedy. I mean, like, I think it's just, I think it's great. And I mean, I was pleasantly surprised to see a number of actors from like the Buffy angel universe right oh, in yeah. here. And I mean, I shouldn't be surprised because, you know, Joss Whedon likes to work with the same people. I mean, a lot of directors do that, but I mean, it's not very often that you get to see Amy Acker in a film, you know? Yeah. And so, I mean, I thought that literally everybody in the, in the, the corporate setting was just phenomenally funny. Really, really well cast film. Really, honestly. Yeah. Even though they they kind of chose some people that are used to like, and I saw some people from Stargate that are not in in, in any movies, you know? So it's like, these are all like bit players and all of these like, or even main characters sometimes and all of these like genre shows and stuff like that, either from Whedonverse or otherwise. And I just, it's still perfectly cast. I love it. And I mean, like, I don't know. I haven't seen a lot of these people in a lot of movies since then. I mean, like Kristen Connolly, I mean, like, 
Can you, you know what else she's been in? I certainly don't. Basically, only Chris Hemsworth. Well, no, Jesse Williams has been in a couple things. Yes. He was in Grey's Anatomy, yeah. you know, and but uh, I mean, but like by and largely, I mean, like. Oh, this cast seemed to like didn't do a whole lot after this movie. And I thought for sure that they would be completely recognized and cast a lot after this. In fact, I really thought that this movie would grab a like attention. You know what I mean? Aside from like horror fan attention, I thought that people would sort of grasp onto this movie just because it was so accessible and so fun. And I mean, everyone whether they like horror movies or not, have seen a lot of these movies and they know, they know the references and whatnot. So I thought for sure it'd be like a huge fucking hit. Well, I mean, I think it was just a victim of the rest of horror movies. A lot of the time where it's just kind of dismissed. Um, And of course this was before like the major horror Renaissance that we, you know, we got with the witch and it follows and everything. And a lot of the other movies that have come since that have really been kind of recognized, especially in mainstream. But you know, back then the horror ghetto was a lot more powerful and you know prevalent yeah. than I think it is today. Do you think this movie was marketed well? I mean, <sighs> I don't, I don't know. I, like I said, that that as much of a spoiler as like the hawk hitting the electric barrier, the force field, or the invisible wall, whatever you want to call it. You know, I think it also kind of teased people. It, obviously, the film did fairly well, but it did much better after people actually, you know, this was, this, this movie was really made for word of mouth. Oh yeah. You know, and the horror, horror fans, I feel like are fairly, you know, siloed in, in a bit, in a way. Um, okay. Yeah. Especially back then. And like, you see like the, it has got 90% or something on rotten tomatoes, but the audience score is so much less than that because of the downer ending. What, what I guess normies would describe as a downer ending. <laughs> We call them normies. <laughs> so I don't know. I I feel like it should be re-released or something. Certainly not remade. Yeah. Oh my God, no! Please never do that ever. But I, I think that this movie has gotten a lot more attention after its theatrical release. I think that it found a I found a home on Blu-ray, and I think a lot of people liked it and rewatched it, especially horror fans, right? And I think that a lot of people talk about this movie still. I think that it's like you know really enjoyed. Um. And for a lot of it's like a thinking man's scary movie. Yes, exactly. And and mostly because of all the fucking monsters that we see in it, right? And so why don't we just take a moment right now and talk about some of the monsters that we get to see in Cabin in the Woods, things that we have seen all throughout our love of horror film growing up. Yeah. So right? first on our list is the werewolf, which was actually played by a guy and a very similar suit uh, that played a bunch of werewolves in like the Underworld series. Really? Yeah. So the werewolf is bet on by the finance department, and apparently it can be summoned by an amulet. And then there's the alien beast, which is bet on by Biomed. Mm-hmm. And I think we get to see that. We see that somewhere in the purge, like on one of the monitors or something. Okay. Uh, there are mutants, and they are bet on by the demolition department. And those are the guys that are like throwing up in people's faces and stuff? Yeah. Mm-hmm. And then we got the wraiths that are summoned by an urn. Right, and that's the ghost from one of the cubes, right? Yeah. So then we have zombies, uh, which are bet on by the chem department, and they are summoned by a chemical tank. So, similar to Return of the Living Dead. Exactly. Yeah. Yeah. And then we've got Reptilius, uh, who actually we do see at the end, but he turns his head around, like one of the Reptilius monsters turn their head around, like a hallway or whatever, like the Raptor in uh, Jurassic Park. Exactly. Right. 
We have clowns, which would be the scariest for me. Like if I were in this fucking situation, I wouldn't have died first in the clowns game. They were bet on by the electric department. Uh, Drew Goddard has said that the fortune teller machine in the basement summons the clowns. Ugh. Yeah. And we have witches. I think, uh, yeah, they're bet on by operations. And then we have sexy witches, <laughs> which is bet on by archives. You can see se- sexy witches whenever she's begging on the cube door. Like one of them, there's a, a witch that's wearing a very low cut back dress, right? And she's yeah. just looking away from it. Yeah. And we've got demons, um, you know, which are, I guess, I, d- I don't remember seeing demons really. Yeah, I couldn't I couldn't find where the demons were in the movie, but they're apparently somewhere. They're at least on the whiteboard, right? Okay. And we have Hell Lord, aka Forn how do you how do you say it? Fornicus, Fornicus. <laughs> Lord of Pain and Bondage. He's bet on by Citizen, and he is summoned from the puzzle orb that um Curtis is playing with. Yeah, they Kurt, almost released yeah. it too, because he turned that shit and was pressing buttons. That's right. And he would have been fucking awesome to see. An angry molesting tree, my personal favorite. <laughs> and this is a callback to Evil Dead, right? So, <laughs> yep. A giant snake. It's bet on by Eternal Logistics. It's summoned by a snake skin. And of course, it's uh it kind of reminds me of the giant snake from Buffy. Yeah. Oh, yeah. from the graduation? Yeah. Was that? Mm-hmm. We have Deadites, and they're bet on by the story department. So a tape recording with verses from the Necro- Necronomicon summons them, obviously. Just like Evil Dead, yeah. Mm-hmm. And we've got Kevin, summoned by playing a film strip, apparently, which is interesting to me. I think so. Kevin, I believe, is supposed to be a reference to Elijah Wood's character from like Sin City, or just a normal-looking boy that might, you know, like I think Drew Goddard said, a normal... Um, adorable looking kid that might work at Best Buy, but until he starts dismembering you. Right. So, or it's like, um, McKelly Culkin from the good son kind of thing. Yeah. You know? Yeah. Mm-hmm. And so, I mean, I would assume that the film strip would have like some of his like conversations with a, a therapist or something on it or something like that. Something to like, like give you a, a insight into his madness before and he's then released. A few years after this, we get the like semi horror movie with Tilda Swinton call. We need to talk about Kevin. Yep, which I also still need to see. So, yeah. I mean, thank you, Cabin in the Woods, for reminding me. And then we've got the mummy, bet on by psychology, summoned by an Egyptian dagger. The bride, um, which is bet on by digital analysis, and is summoned by the wedding dress or the necklace that's attached to the wedding dress. It's something that we almost got because Jules is about to put that necklace Ooh, yep. on. Yep. It'd be an interesting scenario when all of them do something at once. I don't. I wonder if it's like the first one. I don't think it triggers it. They have to push the button. So it's whatever they end up completing first. I think. I don't yeah. think they're gonna summon like all of them. That'd be interesting though. So yeah. Although we get to see all of them in action anyway. So yeah. No, Although yeah. I don't remember seeing the bride in the videos or anything. Uh, the- she's got to be in there somewhere. But yeah, I can't remember it. Right now. And then the scarecrow folk bet on by the DNA archives people and they yeah they're tearing apart uh truman the security guard yeah i yeah that was they had a big moment Mm -hmm. uh there's a snowman which is bet on by communications and it's summoned by a snow globe i can only assume this is something like jack frost right like a scary evil snowman wait do we get to see him in the movie i don't i don't know there's so many things it's like a barrage like right like to your senses and eyes and everything it's just crazy and we've got our dragon bat which got a big moment because it pushed them out of the control room and it got several big moments of flying through the corridors and that was a really impressive creature design Mm -hmm. like 
And I think a lot of these effects were fairly practical too. Like not all of it was done like by CGI. So, I mean, it was very, very impressive. Then we got the vampires bet on by distribution, summoned by a bottle of vampire breath. I don't know. I would have yeah. expected it to be like a little blood vial, like a la like Angelina Jolie and Billy Bob Thornton or something. <laughs> that's right. <laughs> Maybe that's attached to the fucking necklace. Uh, we have some dismemberment goblins and a toy chest summons them from the basement. And I, I think we get to see these briefly in the in the movie. They look sort of like uh, like ghoulies or like something from the movie Troll from back in the 80s, you know? <laughs> Yeah. And we have the sugar plum fairy summoned by the jewelry box. I would have just thought she was the ballerina. I don't know why she's called the sugar plum fairy. Yeah, I this is what they listed as like on the on the whiteboard. Well, I guess because the sugar plum fairy is from a ballet, so right. It makes but sense. I, like I just I wanna see how she kills people with those like all those teeth in her face, you know? Like they they yeah. show more of that. They just show her like dancing around. Like I I wanted to see her kill something. Yeah. Uh, we have the merman, obviously, bet on ha- bet on by Hadley, um, and it's summoned by blowing on the conch shell. And he was so, so upset because it was so close. He had the conch in his hand. <laughs> he did blow into it though; like he just didn't like play it, you know. Oh, that's right. And we got the reanimated bet on by administration. Uh, we have the unicorn, uh, which was bet on by engineering. It's summoned by a tapestry hanging on the basement wall, featuring a unicorn in the center of it. So, I don't <laughs> so know. Random. Like I don't know what you have to do with that fucking tapestry to summon the unicorn, but. <laughs> then we got Huron bet on by R and D, uh, banging the Native American drum summons him. And you get to see him briefly in the purge, the system purge. He's like like on top of someone with his like hatchet or whatever. And Sasquatch or the Wendigo or the Yeti, whatever you want to call it. Uh, according to Drew Goddard, there is a bottle of. Oh, does Squatch in the basement? <laughs> I was running out of ideas. Yeah, I think he was just trying to explain. I think when I found that online, someone had asked him a question in some sort of live Q and A, and he just like came up with that shit off his ass, right? Yeah. So, okay. Yeah. Um, we have the dolls, which is bet on by the kitchen staff, and honestly, I would probably bet on this. So that's kind of good. The kitchen staff did. They're summoned by a white mask, which is similar to what they wear in the movie. Okay, right? so it's not actual dolls; it's actually like the strangers. Right. So yeah. they call them the dolls. So okay. um, if if you watch in their, their cube when it shows them and then later on, it's actually a family. So a mother, a father and the two kids wearing the masks and they sort of torture, kill. And um, at one point, they're like pouring gasoline on a yeah. fa- on people to burn them alive. Right. So it's really is like the strangers. And so yeah. like I, I think that's terrifying so clowns and the fucking dolls like no and then of course we get the doctors which i'm sure includes at least one dentist bet on by accounting (laughs) dr giggles (laughs) there's that one scene where like that guy's on the table and all the doctors around him he's like please don't cut and then it cuts to the doctor like holding up a scalpel and shit love it and then we have the zombie redneck torture family which is bet on by maintenance and ronald the intern and summoned by reading from the diary. What's the line from that? Where he's like, they may be a zombie redneck torture family, but there are zombie redneck torture family. It's not exactly like that. They, they yeah. add a few more insults to them in that <laughs> dumbass redneck torture family. Yeah. And we get Jack-O-Lantern, bet on by security. Uh, we have a giant that's bet on by zoology. And the twins, summoned by a pair of small stuffed animals. And these are a direct reference to The Shining. Yeah. So, Mm -hmm. yeah. So that's everything from the whiteboard. Now, there are 
tons and tons of other monsters and creatures featured in this movie that are not on the whiteboard. That right? no one bet on, I'm sure, yeah. Right. I mean, it wasn't even an option to bet on, right? So we have that creepy slow walking girl that we see in the hallway, right? There's like tons of other stuff in this movie and you can go online and people have devoted a lot of time into like categorizing and writing down everything that you can find in this movie. That's a direct reference to another horror movie, right? Yeah. So, I mean, there's just like tons and tons and tons of shit going on and it's just very, very impressive. I was thinking like the ring um with with that little girl or maybe even like there was a game called fear because they actually in those cubes you can see other like uh left for dead uh characters in some of those cubes Mm -hmm. and uh so that might have been something from um the the video game called fear and there are i mean so like i was looking at a website and they have listed like several video game characters Mm -hmm. that you can just barely see Right. And so like they make call outs to everything from like horror literature, horror films, horror mm-hmm. video games, horror comics, you know, just anything you could possibly think of. There's supposed to be a rabid dog somewhere in there. I mean, they, they, they really leave nothing out. Oh, there's a giant kitten in one of those. <laughs> <laughs> and so it's just like there's so much and it begs the question, you know, like the screenplay has got to be magnificent. I would love to read it. And I really need to get my hands on the novelization, actually, because mm-hmm. I'm sure there's a whole bunch of details that we're just missing by watching the movie. And I mean, just everything about this screenplay is fantastic. It's funny, you know, it's it's well-written from a character standpoint, and it has so much inclusion. I mean, can you imagine what it must have been like to be Drew Goddard and Joss Whedon sitting there in those three days? Like, okay, what can we fucking think of next to put in here? Which horror movie <laughs> have we forgotten, right? They probably had their own whiteboard, and they were just like, just writing down and diagramming and just like going in all kinds of places. I mean, can yep. you imagine what those three days were like? Jesus. I know. I have such a husband bulge thinking about what those three days must have been like. <laughs> we should lock ourselves into a into a hotel room or something and and come up with our own movie. Hey, do the I'm, same thing. I mean, I would love to. You know, in fact, maybe we might do something like that for Patreon, right? Mm. So, so I have a couple of well, six fun facts. Okay, good. Lay them on me. I love these. So the movie's opening was a deliberate attempt by filmmakers Drew Goddard and Joss Whedon to confuse the audience and make them think that they walked in to see the wrong movie, just as we talked about before. (laughs) I mean, it was pretty effective. Yeah. During the lake scene, the only student not to jump into the lake is Marty, who remains fully clothed on the dock. This was partially due to Fran Kranz noticeably being in as good, if not better shape than the other male students. In the what? commentary for the film, the writers joke that he was ripped like muscular Jesus and assert that if Marty was shown being that fit, it would ruin the character. This is partly also why Marty wears baggier clothes than the other students. Oh my God. Okay. I'm going to need to some photographic proof of all this <laughs> like really <laughs> because i mean like he's funny and wise and smokes a lot of pot and if he's that ripped too i mean like it would not take much <laughs> <laughs> so when jules kisses the wolf head on the wall and the wolf's tongue is covered in powdered sugar to give it a dusty look and also make the scene more tolerable for anna Hutchinson. <laughs> She was a committed actress. I'm sure she would she have was. done it anyway. So the Latin that Dana reads from the diary is dolor supervivo caro, dolor sublimus caro, and dolor igneo animus. It means pain outlives the flesh. Pain raises the flesh. Pain ignites the spirit. I don't know if that's fun so much as creepy, but... 
<laughs> yeah, I mean, <laughs> it seems like something they would have to say during every single ritual. I don't know. That's pretty good Latin reading, though. Okay, so if we're ever in a situation, you and I, where we find something written in Latin, just keep your mouth shut. Okay, you can't read any of it. Because you'll want to. Because <laughs> I will want to read it, but I know for a fact that I couldn't get any of those words out of my mouth, so we'd be saved. I'd be like, blah, 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 the whole time. It's all right. <laughs> so the failed rituals from the other countries are references to various classic movies and monsters. The Kyoto ritual is a reference to Ringu, or the ring. Buenos Aires uh, ritual is reference to King Kong. The Stockholm ritual is a reference to John Carpenter's The Thing. And the Madrid reference appears to reference Dracula. Oh, I don't think I noticed all those. I knew Stockholm, though. I mean, that was clearly the thing. Right? Yeah. So much of Drew Goddard's, this is the last one, much of Drew Goddard's inspiration for this movie came from his own upbringing in Los Alamos, New Mexico, a place filled with scientists and co-workers all going about their business and living seemingly routine and ordinary lives, even though they were building nuclear weapons that could potentially destroy the entire world. He talks about this in the DVD special features, interviews, and commentary. Holy shit, that's going to be a really odd upbringing. Yeah. Apparently influential, and I'm glad, but I mean... Whew. Have you seen a lot of the like special features on the DVD? <sighs> Long ago. Yeah, I mean I like I I own the Blu-ray mm-hmm. and I I was gonna watch the Blu-ray for that very reason. I was just like, I, I bet there's some cool special features. But then I saw on Amazon they had a um ultra high def version and I wanted to watch that. So I rented that version instead. <laughs> I've <laughs> I've literally rented things for like $2 just so I wouldn't have to walk across my house or my apartment to the DVD and find it. Then. No, that's okay. I get it because all of my DVDs are alpha- alphabetized in binders. All I have to do is like flip to the page and they're literally underneath my TV where I'm sitting feet away, but I will still just press the button on the fucking remote and pay the money for it. Which is why I have to rewatch Cabin Fever because I rented it because I didn't want to dig it out. And now I have to dig it out and watch it anyway because I fell asleep. Oh. Well, we have a series of questions we like to ask about the movies we deep dive into here at the Film Flamers. And The Cabin in the Woods is no exception. And we're going to start out with the first question, which is usually the silliest to ask and the easiest to answer. Is Cabin in the Woods a horror movie? Yes. <laughs> in some ways the the horror movie of horror movies and and also some ways it's not a horror movie which is what i was getting into during our conversation on that i really thought that you know audiences would grasp onto this movie i remember watching it and i thought you know maybe if this movie was marketed a little bit better if it was marketed as more of a comedy and not a straight up horror movie you know more people would have flocked to see it and it would have just like gone on to be this huge like cultural touchstone which it became in a way but really with horror fans you know Mm -hmm. does that make sense yeah yeah and i i agree that it's not simply just a horror movie it's kind of something that's like greater than the sum of its parts there's dark comedy in there there's obviously a lot of social commentary but there's multiple different types of horror in there as well either tongue-in-cheek or actual straight-up horror 
So, you know, I have to say this is not adjacent at all. It's still a straight up horror movie. It's just there's so much more to it. Right. I mean, and I agree with all that, right? I I, would, I agree that it's a straight up horror movie and has some adjacency moments. But if I were going to sit down with somebody that I know is not a horror fan and I said, hey, let's watch a horror movie, this is probably one of the first things that I would pick. Well, you're absolutely right because this movie has so many layers and complexities to it that you can market it in a number of ways, right? There's multiple ways to edit this, um, you know, to, to actually kind of draw people in and for different types of people. You know, so I think you're right in that it could have had multiple different types of trailers that went out, you know, which I think a lot of movies do today. You know, they'll have like a teaser trailer and then trailer one, two, three, four. I mean, to the nth nth degree of whatever they're trying to do to get this people to see the movie. Right. And maybe back in 2011, you know, I I just remember seeing the one trailer and it was intriguing enough for me to want to see the movie based on also the lore of knowing that it was shelved for so long. Like this is something I really wanted to see. Yeah. All right. So secondly, were you scared while watching cabin in the woods? I, there's only a couple jump scares and I remember being scared. uh, I think a couple of times, probably in the cabin moments you know and i didn't i don't think i expected to be because you're you're so busy thinking about other oh, corporations putting all the strings and this is like this part's funny and that part's not you know it kind of keeps you off guard a little bit off guard enough to be easy to laugh uh, off guard enough to be easy to be scared or jumped and um that's what part of what makes this movie special so yeah i, I would say i was scared maybe not this watch but it does give you a kind of feeling of dread you know, now and again. Yeah. I mean, and certainly on this watch, I wasn't scared. Right. But the first time, I mean, I definitely jumped during the title card sequence for sure. <laughs> yeah. And I, I jumped whenever Holden gets the, the fucking like large knife through the throat, you know, the first time yep. I watched it. And then during the system purge, when all the monsters are there and I'm sort of on the edge of my seat, not just because I'm totally scared, but I'm also so giddy at what's going on, you know, in the background, you know, but I mean, like I, I have to stop and remember that some of these things that I'm seeing on screen in this movie in a more comical way have scared me in others, you know, and it's just like, but that's an interesting point too, because it does mix different emotions together. The, the, that sense of wonder with also being completely horrified by what you're seeing. Exactly. Like this holy I mean, shit moment. That's also just so horrific. You're not sure where to put your emotions. And I think that's part of how this movie works. You're exactly right. I mean, hundreds of people are dying in a matter of minutes. Right. Mm -hmm. And it's just like, like I said, a barrage to the senses of everything that's going on in that particular moment. And it's just like, it's a wonder to look at. And when you stop and really think about like the horror that's going on in that place, if you take out the comedy and take out your like giddy sense of like being a horror fan, it really is like just terrifying. So, all right. So on a scale of five stars, what would you rate Cabin in the Woods? I looked at my letterbox and I had rated this a four star, but I'm kind of wondering if I shouldn't place it up to like a four and a half. Yeah, I'm going with a straight four and a half on this one. Okay. Like I was really going back and forth between like putting it at five, right? Um, I put things on letterbox, you know, as I watch them sort of organically, right? I and, But I'm, I'm going to go back and just start filling in movies that I've seen before because I want to compare on like rewatches. And uh, but this one is definitely four and a half bordering on five, but there's really not a whole bunch that I would change about the movie. A lot of it's real nitpicky. If anything, I just wanted to see a whole lot more of, you know, that system purge and all the monsters going on in it Yeah, and get a little bit more time with that. And that's the, the only thing that I would say is bad about this movie. Other than that, I think it's damn near perfect. Agreed. 
So finally, who's the hottest guy in Cabin in the Woods? have to be basic and say chris hemsworth oh although that jesse guy is really fucking hot jesse williams is so fucking hot and he is my choice i have to say (laughs) yeah like i you know i've always been a sucker for like dark hair light eyes and uh Mm -hmm. he's one of those people he has amazingly beautiful eyes i'm like on the fence between those two but yeah this um this movie is not lacking in that department well, and now that you've told me that fun fact about Fran Kranz, I'm just like, now I'm so fucking torn. I mean, like, really, damn. Yeah, I feel like this this would be, a, between those three, it would be a fun game of Mary Fuck Kill. Yeah. Okay. Well, you know, maybe on Patreon, too. I mean, who knows? <laughs> maybe after to see those fucking pictures. I'm going to Google the fuck out of that and just see what comes up. Damn. Well, everyone, I think that just about wraps up our conversation on Cabin in the Woods. It is by far one of our favorite horror comedies, which we'd like to cover in April. So um, we hope that you enjoyed everything that we had to say about it. And we'd like to know your thoughts about Cabin in the Woods. Uh, you can tell us on social media at the Film Flamers on Twitter, Facebook or Instagram. Or you can email us at tiredqueens at filmflamers.com or call us on our hotline at 972-666-7733. Leave us a voicemail and we'll respond to it on the next Shooting the Flames. We also like to list our reviews and patrons on our Shooting the Flames episode. You can leave us a review on Apple Podcasts. Just go hit that five star button and then leave us a little snippet about why you like our podcast and we'll read that on our Shooting the Flames episode. Also head over to patreon.com slash the film flamers so we can find hours and hours of bonus content and some bonus content directly related to Cabin in the Woods coming out this month for as little as two dollars. So we've got one more episode coming out in April for you, and that is Cabin Fever, which I'm sure we're all suffering from lately. So come join us. <laughs> come play with us. Forever. Oh, no, wrong movie. <laughs> <laughs> Pancakes. Pancakes. <laughs> Yet another fun-filled movie. <laughs> I mean, I laugh at that movie a lot. So Yeah. It's apropos. Well, guys, as always, we appreciate the listens. And I'm going to go Google some pictures of Fran Kranz so I can have some <laughs> sweet dreams. <laughs> that fucking clown in Cabin in the Woods, I, like his laugh just sort of reminds me of me. I think when I was watching it, I was just like, oh my God, he laughs like me. And I was just like, Do I need to get my lawyer? <laughs> that is copyrighted. It's another lawsuit for you, Drew Goddard and Joss Whedon. <laughs> <laughs>